0: From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. Today, contact us, card payment limit in the UK to jump to £100 next month. Stripe and others invest $200 million in African fintech Wave, which is now valued at $1.7 billion. And Peter Thiel is building a luxury vacation bunker in New Zealand. All this and much, much more on today's show. Before we start, though, we just wanted to tell you about something we've been cooking up here at 11FS. And a quick word from our sponsors. The banking industry has lots of baggage, so, well, we've been thinking, what if you could build a bank from scratch? Join us and some very special guests as we hit a reset button. Our latest After Dark virtual live podcast recording takes place on Wednesday, the 15th of September. Head to bit.ly forward slash FIAfterDark. That's bit.ly forward slash FIAfterDark to sign up now you definitely won't want to miss this one.
1: Temenos is the world's leader in banking software, helping over 3,000 banks serve over 1.2 billion people. Our purpose is to make banking better. Together with our community, we make banks more successful, individuals better banked, and society better served. With our software, banks can create more human, differentiated digital experiences, hyper-efficient business models to benefit the bank and their customers, and simplify and transform their back office. Our clients are the highest performing banks with cost income ratios which are twice better than the industry average. Learn more at temenos.com.
0: Welcome to episode 562 of Fintech Insider. My name is David Breer, and I'm joined by my 11FS colleague Amy Gavin. How are you doing Amy? How's your week been?
1: Hi um good thank you busy week uh but got some interesting stories to talk about today so looking forward to that
0: It is it's always a always an interesting week in fintech there's always at least Ten good things that have happened, isn't there? Which is uh, which is always good. It's been a really busy week, I have to say. I know I say this every every week, but uh, just the pace of things that are happening in uh, financial services really seems to have picked up. Everybody uh, sort of come back from. I don't know if it's COVID or whether everybody's come back off holiday, but something interesting is happening, isn't it? So uh, anyway, as always, we're joined by some super duper awesome guests making a welcome return. We have Emily Nicole, who is the fintech correspondent at Financial News. How's it going? It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. Uh, it sounds like you're going up in the world, literally. We we were discussing offline. You've uh, you've moved uh, moved flat up a couple of flights of stairs, haven't you?
2: Yeah, I mean it's been a while since I've been on with you. I've been on a little bit over the summer, I think, occasionally. So I've done a few episodes from this flat now. But um, yeah, it's interesting to, to see you again, David. You've changed a lot over the over the course of the lockdown, I guess.
0: Well, my beard's a bit shorter than it was when I was in peak lockdown, I have to say. So I'm, I'm looking a little bit less uh, Man of the Woods vibe going on right now, which is, uh, which is good. But uh, uh, it's going to be very vivid for people listening to the podcast, isn't it, at that point? Uh, anyway, and, and making his FinTech Insider debut, we have Cordell Robin-Coker, who is the co-founder and CEO over at Carry First. Cordell, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me. I'm excited.
0: No worries. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, tell us a little bit more about Carry First. I mean, you guys made the news recently, didn't you, with the, the funding? I think you got investors from gaming media and the fintech space, didn't you? So tell us a little bit more about the company, how it started, and uh, where you guys are at now.
3: Absolutely. So at Carry First, we're an embedded fintech player uh, that sits at the intersection of gaming, mobile gaming, and financial services. So we work with studios around the world to license and publish their their mobile games across Africa. And one of the things that we learned was the biggest pain point is people in Africa oftentimes don't have an internationally accepted credit card. So we've built out our own FinTech platform that accepts alternative forms of payments like mobile money, instant bank transfer, QR codes. And uh, we allow people to be able to pay for the virtual content that they want to and that allows our partners to make money. So we're about three years old. We just raised our Series A, which you referenced. We raised about $7 million from a combination of VCs and strategics, and uh, we're trying to make something of this.
0: Very, very cool. I mean, mobile gaming, media, and fintech. I mean, if you want to tick all three boxes of high growth markets, like you guys, uh, you hit the trifactor there, didn't you?
3: Yeah, it happens to be a uh, a really good combination. I would say when when we started, people looked at us and said, "Mobile gaming in Africa?" You know, I'm not sure about that. Um, but over the last you know two and a half years, and especially with what happened with COVID, it's become apparent that it's uh, a massively growing space, the most important and significant form of media, and uh, and that payments is the really the. The linchpin for it all. So we're uh, we're fortunate and uh, happy to ride the wave while we have it.
0: Very, very cool. All right. Well, uh, on that note, we better get on with the show. There's been plenty of different things happening this week. Uh, and let's get right into it, shall we? So, the first story came from Yahoo News. This is contactless card limit to be increased in the UK. It's going to be jumping up to £100 as of next month. So, the national rollout of the new £100, so that's $138 for our American listeners. Uh, the spend a bit for contactless card payments will begin from the 15th of October 2021, UK Finance said on. On Friday. The decision to raise the contact limit from £45 to £100 was made by HM Treasury and the FCA following a public consultation and discussion with the retail and banking sectors. The FCA has said that by doing this, uh, they're looking to recognise a change in behaviour in how people pay. Increasing the contact limits will make it easier than ever to pay safely and securely, whether that's at the local shops, the favourite pub, restaurant or or anywhere else, said UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak. Um, what do you guys think on this one? I mean, Emily, how do you pay for stuff? Are you are you a contactless gal, or are you do you use cash, or like what's the what's the ch- uh, money of choice? Because I mean, I, I found I literally forgot to take my wallet out last last week when I came into London. It didn't really seem to bother me in terms of uh, all the options that we've got in the UK now. But uh, how how do you mostly pay?
2: Yeah, I'm an Apple Pay person. I pretty much never even use my debit card. Um, so, the, so a change in the contactless limit is almost pointless for me because um, I do everything with my mobile. I'd almost never use my wallet, which so like you, I frequently forget to take it out and then I'm like, oh, don't I have any ID <laughs> or any of the other stuff I might need. Um, so like my first reaction to this was that, well, this makes sense, right? Because obviously if you're paying via a mobile payment, then there's no contactless limit. It's all you can buy. Anything up to an entire computer using Apple Pay if you want to. So I was like, well, it makes sense. I mean, why wouldn't you do the same? Um, But then on second thought, you also do have a rise in, you have a lot more fraud when it comes to contactless because you're more likely to probably lose your debit card than you might be to lose your phone. um, And people can just use it. There's no biometric interface going on, so they can just tap wherever they want. Whereas at least with my mobile, it's scanning my face or my fingerprint um so that is I guess a little bit more concerning on on that side of things as well and also RFID fraud you know there's always the risk at least I've heard of it anyway I've not seen it happen before but where you could just have your card nearby and someone can come close enough with a reader and scan it that way um I don't know whether that's the the conspiracy theorist in me (laughs) um but that would then again make me nervous if they were to make raise it much higher than than something smaller like 45 pounds
0: it is interesting, isn't it? On that on that note, I mean, at, at what point do we start seeing, you know, these things to be? You know, we can see mag stripes be. Toggleable—I'm not sure "toggleable" is a word, but let's go with it. Uh, on uh, uh, within people's apps and whatnot. But you know, at what point does contactless actually become a you know an option for people and an option people want to opt out of? I know we've, as to your point, Emily, we've seen the um, you know the people having wallets with uh, tinfoil around them to try and stop people you know patting them on the bum and taking fifty pounds. But uh, I guess the risk of that goes up, doesn't it, with the the limits changing? Amy, what what do you think on this one? Is this a is this just a sign of things to come into terms of the, the limiting increasing and therefore being you know appropriate to more everyday spend uh, limits that people are seeing or you know do you think there's something wider to this
1: yeah I think um, the first thing that I thought about this was that there'd been relatively little noise around it I think that when the contactless limit changed from 30 to 45 it felt like everyone was talking about it and debating it and actually 45 to 100 quite significant and there's been a lot less conversation about it. But I think it raises the interesting question as well around how high are people willing to to take it with a contactless limit? Because as Emily says, there's no upper limit on um Apple Pay or Google Pay, but but thanks to the biometrics, you feel a lot more safer doing it. So um yeah, I suppose it's how high that would that limit go and at what point do people feel uncomfortable paying for something with with contactless payments. But £100, pounds, it, it will be interesting to see, you know, how how quick, how um, much time until the next increase.
0: Hmm. Uh, what I'll do off the back of this actually is trying to have a bit of a dig into what was the fraud numbers off the macro contactless because, I mean, theoretically, you know, doubling the amount could double the the chances of fraud taking place, but uh, I'll go and have a little bit of a research on that one off after the show. Cordell, um, how do you pay most frequently? I mean, I guess if uh, if you're really investing and in, uh, so heavily from your perspective in mobile, then I reckon the answer is going to be mobile, right? But uh, um, how do you mostly pay?
3: That that would be a good assumption, but I'm I'm pretty old school personally. I, I still use cards, um, and I do use a, a lot of contactless um, because it's it's just convenient. I think this is actually a, a really interesting and notable move. There's a, I think, mis, misallocated quote to Benjamin Franklin uh, saying something like, those who would give up their freedom for their security deserve neither freedom nor security. Um, and with that said, I think it just goes to show that people fundamentally value convenience over security. Um, if I thought back, You know five or six years ago when the chip was first introduced to the credit card the idea was that it was a second layer of security where you had chip and pin and you would have to put in a second factor of authentication in order to be able to make a payment Um, and now the idea that you don't have to have any authentication the merchant doesn't know who you are. They don't even know that you own the card and you can just sort of walk by and tap and go, um, is essentially the exact opposite. And, um, I think for users and for individuals that it, it's what they want. I'm surprised that regulators are essentially following in that direction because it opens up a lot of risk within the system. Um, but fundamentally banks are really good at this. They, uh, any fraud or chargebacks, they push back to the merchant, um, and so I think they're happy because people make more purchases and uh, don't think much when they're doing transactions. People are happy because they can uh, don't have to think about it. And if someone steals their data or their information, they just get refunded. And so it's a it's it's an interesting transition, um, but one that I. You know, looking back, uh, find a little bit surprising. But but cool. I think good for everyone.
0: Cool. Well, it's, a, it's going to be a fascinating one to see if it leads to more and more people using it or not. And uh, definitely, as we hear more of that data, we'll, we'll come back to you and talk to you about that one much more. All right. We better move on, though. There's plenty of other stories to talk about. So f- next on was over on TechCrunch, which is Sequoia Heritage Stripe and others invest $200 million in African fintech Wave at a $1.7 billion valuation. Wave, a US and Senegalese-based mobile money provider, has raised $200 million in a Series A round of funding. The investment is the largest ever Series A round for the region and values it, as I said, at $1.7 billion. Uh, Four big-name backers jointly led this round, Sequoia Heritage, a private investment fund, Uh, and a subsidiary of Sequoia, Founders Fund, Payments Giant Stripe, and Ribbit Capital. Some big old names in there, isn't there, for this one. Um, The past year, uh, up to $500 billion has moved through the accounts of 300 million active mobile money users in the region, despite being one of the largest alternative... Financial infrastructure is known globally. It represents only a fraction of the overall market. I, I mean, um, I mean, this is one that uh, Guerra 11FS was getting very excited about in our Slack channel, and I, I know she put out a public uh, tweet stream, and that you should definitely sort of check out on this one. But I mean, Cordell, having recently been through your own Series A fund round with a with big name investors, I mean, does this reflect a bit of a a new wave of change that we're seeing within the African market? You know, for fintech and for tech more broadly.
3: It definitely does, and it is. It really punctuates what's been a series of of wins for the Africa sort of fintech um, ecosystem. The one thing is, you know, Stripe, which is one of the investors here. This is now their second foray into early stage tech in Africa in the last couple of years. At the end of 2020, they bought a company called Paystack which I was a very, very small investor in, um, and they bought 100% of it. It's a, a payments business. They're now investing once again in another payments business in the region. And um, I think it's it's really just a, a sign of the times. This year, I can think of probably four other major $50 million plus raises by African fintech players um, punctuated by Flutterwave, which raised, I think, $170 million uh, from Tiger Global and co. So I, I think it probably signifies a couple of things. One, tech is really hot globally. That's an obvious point. Two, I think fintech is really leading the way as far as where that capital wants to go and where they see the opportunity. And I think three, you know, Africa is now becoming a place that uh, Western powers and individuals feel is investable. They feel like the risk-reward trade-off has aligned. And that wasn't the case five years ago. It's It's been really a phenomenon over the last 24 months.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? The, the momentum seems to be building more and more and more in the the, the region. And uh, I mean, it's the the same, week, uh, I know, big announcements around m and different things that have happened in terms of usage and numbers and, you know, but we're seeing more mature, you know, M-Pesa m- was always a, almost a uh, solution that was uh, almost a bit of a MacGyver, you know. It was built on the the sort of quite basic infrastructure that was in the uh, in the region at the time. But obviously, this is something where we're seeing really mature fintech businesses being established, solving you know really important problems uh, in a clearly hugely uh, high potential growth market with the the amount of people that are there that are, you know, we always talk about being underserved or overcharged or overwhelmed, right? And, uh, you know, as an underserved market, there's a huge amount of opportunity there. Emily, uh, you know, African stories must be coming across your desk more, more and more frequently.
2: It, it, they are, but not from the perspective you think, actually. I mean, so not to be like the, the Simon Taylor on this one, but um, when I see stories about, mobile money now and and serving the unbanked in the regions like Africa, I always go to crypto because one of the main arguments for crypto, not being so great for the environment, but being better on the social side is that it's supposed to be great for the unbanked. It's supposed to be helping people in places where they can't access traditional banking services, be able to use money in that sense. And that's always the argument that gets put across. And people think that crypto is going to change the way that people bank in, in Africa, especially but then to pay the devil's advocate to that, I mean, as as we've seen with El Salvador and Bitcoin, which also happened this week, um, I'm not too sure what the internet penetration is, but I would say that it's probably not going to be at the same level as mobile money would be. A lot more people will have mobile phones that can handle doing things through telecoms networks than they probably can through you know, super fast internet that you would need to be able to do a transaction in Bitcoin. So I, I'm personally on the side that I think mobile money is going to be going further than cryptocurrencies, at least at the moment. Um, that may change if internet penetration gets a bit better. Um, and Wave is just going to be one of the many players that are really targeting that. We've been talking about m server ever since I first started coming on this podcast in 2018. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how they manage to crack a market, which to me anyway is already pretty established.
0: I love that. Um, firstly, I love that just randomly bringing up cryptocurrency is now called doing a Simon Taylor. Like I just, it's I, blockchain I feel, insider, I, really. <laughs> exactly. I feel, I feel like we need to uh, we need to give Simon a little shout out and jingle on that one. But uh, um, but it, but it is it is interesting. Do you know what, what I've what i found? And this is purely this is purely um, my traveling around in various different parts of Africa. Is that actually there is better. 4G. I mean, I had better 4G in the jungle in Rwanda than I do at my home in Norfolk. And actually, you know, when when actually, I, I do think, and I know um, the World Bank and uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation have said this in the past as well. I know Costa Peric uses this as a, uh, a bit of a yardstick for. Um, for, for for potential in the region, which is there is a definite correlation between inclusion and data connectivity from a mobile network perspective. And I do agree with you. I think actually, as the the mobile connectivity gets better and better in more places, then actually there is the opportunity to bring people into the market. I think the the interesting thing is where and Amy, you sort of touched on the, this a little bit, but it's not just about inclusion. These plays, it's it's actually much more sophisticated financial services products more akin to you know global challenger banks that we're kind of seeing being set up now so um but again look on this one the the uh whether they can uh, uh you know really live up to such a a significant valuation um we'll definitely kind of get the the guys on from wave to to talk about this a little bit more and and really understand what they're going to be doing with all of the uh, the investment that they've got and and where they look to take the company next but uh, on that note we're going to have to take a little bit of a break we'll be back with you shortly There is a better way to hire internationally, and it starts with Deal. Everything from contract creation, record-keeping, payments, and full-time employment is all in one place for teams all over the world. Companies anywhere can hire compliantly everywhere thanks to Deal. It's payroll and compliance built for today's worldwide workforce. To learn more, visit Let's Deal forward slash 11FS. That's Let's Deal, D E E L. Dot .com forward slash 11 and redeem an exclusive offer of three months free when you hire a contractor and 20% for your first year when you hire an employee. Fintech Meetup is the world's largest fintech meeting event. We're facilitating more than 30,000 meetings for 4,000 participants. It takes place online March 8th to the 10th, 2022. Join startups, established fintechs, investors, banks and credit unions, media analysts, and much, much more as they come together for partnership discussions, vendor presentations, investment pitches, and other meaningful collaborations. For more information and to get your ticket, go to www.fintechmeetup.com. Okay, uh, next story that we have is one that was over on Finextra. This is Point Raises $46.5 million to give millennials a reward-based alternative to credit cards. Reward-based debit card startup, Point has closed a 46.5 million Series B funding round led by Peter Thiel's Valor Ventures. Point is bringing the high-end credit card experience to young millennials floundering in debt, offering a debit card and linked bank account that features a range of premium perk based benefits. Uh, Point Guide provides holders unlimited cash back, unlimited cash back, dangerous, um, by earning points on every purchase, like cut to the the forum where somebody's exploited this one in an amazing way, right? You know, just foreshadowing that story in three weeks' time. And the latest funding round allows a $10.5 million Series A raise in March and brings point total funding to $60 million. Um, super interesting. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, I, I've sort of stopped hearing... Big banks go. We need a proposition for those young millennials. Like, and what do they do with their money? Um So it's interesting that they've sort of come out and aimed it specifically at a millennial, you know, generation. But uh Emily, what do you what do you think of of this one? We're, I, I guess, we're we're seeing more and more and more very targeted niche products being particularly successful. But what do you think with Point? Do you think there's a um, a, a, a niche here that's or an unmet needs that they will meet?
2: I mean. I think it's hard. It's a hard one to figure out, really, because rewards based debit products have really not been a thing in the UK, at least in any form of successful way. So it's hard to know whether or not teens and and millennials would actually be into the idea of being able to track how many rewards they can get from their debit card. I think the biggest hill, obviously, will be the, the the move to try and push young people towards debit cards versus credit cards, because credit cards are such a massive thing in the US and debit cards are kind of still a little bit of an unknown. I think if you think about the way you're exposed to banking first off is how your parents bank, right? And if your parents were always using credit cards, then you think, OK, well, I'm going to get my first credit card at this age, etc. You're not thinking I'm going to get my first debit card and I'm only going to spend money that I actually have. Um, so while it's obviously a lot healthier for kids to be given debit cards first, not credit, and to learn to spend with only money that they have rather than money that they, they'll need to pay back, it'll be a bit of a learning curve, I think, to kind of get them into that product first over anything else. For me, though, if I think about the way that US people in, young people in the US bank... Um, And what products are available to them? It's always, you know, like Charlie D'Amelio holding up her debit card and trying to get all these new young influencers into becoming influencers. And whether or not Point is going to have to go down that road. I mean, I'm not sure maybe they already have, but I'd say it's only a matter of time.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I, I wonder whether the products, I mean, the the quotes that are coming out from Point CEO, so uh, Patrick Mirowitz, I believe, um, We're so excited to announce our Series B funding. Um, Gen Z and millennials who've been massively underserved by legacy banking institutions with clunky debit cards and no rewards. I, I mean, I, I kind of feel like I'm not sure necessarily the product is the problem when it comes to, you know, millennials or Gen Z, I just think it's the way it's talked about. Do you know what I mean? Like actually people, I think the now that there is more choice, people have a choice to bank with people who talk to them in a, like a human, or talk to them like a fuddy duddy bank type thing? And maybe that's going to be the difference between these ones. Actually, if you can just start talking to people like people, maybe that'll be a good enough cut through to actually get them to to bank with them rather than banking with, uh, as you say, uh, banking with who mum and dad did. But, Amy, what do you what do you think on this one? Um, would a, uh, I, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm stretching it too much to say you almost certainly are a millennial. I think you might, are you Gen Z or are you a millennial?
1: I'm a millennial.
0: You're a millennial. Okay. So so would a bank, a current account who gave you, you know, talked to you in a little bit better way, but gave you premium features to, uh, as in cashback, uh, unlimited cashback or rewards, would that be enough to get you to switch from who you bank with now?
1: It's all about the cashback. I think that's what's interesting about this is that part of the offering is, is cashback focused and I'd be really interested to see if they actually manage to deliver on rewards that are appealing because I don't know about you but I've always found myself to be very underwhelmed by the rewards that come with my credit card whether that's some sort of um, hotel chain you've never heard of or it tends to be brands that are relatively lesser known and also quite a mixed bag of rewards as well so I think if they can really um create an offering with rewards that are relevant and brands that you recognize then i think they could stand to do quite well amongst you know millennials or or any any market really but i think as well what's important here is that i'm interested in the idea that millennials are tending to prefer debit card to credit card and what's really driving that and that whether um recognizing that millennials want debit cards and pairing that with rewards could could mean that they understand their market quite well, and and could be a success for them.
0: Yeah, I mean that slightly flies in the face of, I guess, a lot of the statistics we've seen. I mean, nobody's using credit cards anymore because everybody's buying everything on bloody buy now pay later, aren't they? You know, so so I wonder if actually we've just got a few more you know strings to our bow when it comes to purchasing power now. Um, but it's but it is interesting. I mean, the rewards seen more broadly, you know, particularly in the UK, is predicated on you know, giving you a bunch of rewards that they sort of hope you don't use to a certain degree. You know, they bundle insurance products or, you know, it's the perception of value rather than necessarily the value, isn't it? I mean, it's interesting for for a startup to do Uncapped cashback because even somebody like Amex will will cap it at certain rates uh, or a, a and a monthly amount or anything without actually getting you to a point where you start paying for a, a card. So it's uh, it's interesting to see, but um, hey, uh, proof is always in the pudding, right? Let's uh, let's see how many people take this up. Let's see how, how many customers they acquire. Uh, and see where we get to next on this one. I'm going to have to move us on because there's a lot of other stories for us to get through. But uh, uh, the next story that we had was uh, TechCrunch uh, covered this, but it was in a lot of other places as well. Beijing wants tech giants to shoulder more of social responsibilities. So as of the 1st of September, users under the age of 18 are now limited to only one hour online gaming time. This is just... Bizarre, like I, I, like I really. It was a good shout for have this one as the and finally at the end of the thing. So on Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays between nine and uh, sorry eight PM and nine PM. So people are only allowed to use. Uh, One hour of online gaming, Friday, Saturday, and Sundays between 8 and 9. The stringent rules added to already tightening gaming policies for minors as the government blames video games for causing myopia as well as deteriorating mental and physical health. Uh, China has also pressured its tech behemoths to take on more social responsibilities, which includes respecting the workers' rights uh, in gig economy, uh, last week, the Supreme People's Court of China declared the 996 schedule, that's the working 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which has pretty much been the, uh, I'll be honest, the uh, the real um, driving engine of the Chinese economy, uh, as illegal. The declaration follows years of workers' resistance against the tech industry burnout culture, which is manifested in actions like GitHub's project listing companies practicing 996. Um, I tweeted about this where I was like, "It feels a little bit sometimes like it's sort of like a parent that's back, been backed into a corner with these things." You know, actually, the idea that you can, in any way, enforce this seems quite bizarre. But I mean, Emily, what, what do you think on this one? Is this um, is this sort of Big Brother going a little bit far, or is it the state stepping in where potentially? Uh, you know we're talking about life-threatening illnesses you know we we I joke about the the physical impact, but we are seeing people's eyeballs sh- changing shape, aren't we in China because of the amount of time they're spending on mobile phones or computer games it's um it's quite alarming
2: I mean I'm not a parent myself, so I, I wouldn't have much of an insight into you know, how how much control that we have over kids these days and their screen time. but I know it's increasingly becoming a big debate um Palmy Olsen who just moved to Bloomberg wrote a very good column on that this week so I encourage you to check that out um, but I think in this particular instance it's you can never really say whether or not China is going too big brother because we all have have come to expect that from China um it's the, the nature of, of a of a communist regime I guess is that the, the belief is that they can do whatever they want to if, if this is where they want to go then they can and the, the, the citizens should be expected to comply with the rules um so therefore, we we wouldn't really know whether or not they managed to achieve this, I guess. Um, but as a kid who frequently spent nights staying up under my duvet with my DS playing Pokemon um, and hoping I didn't get caught by my mum, I, I wouldn't say that and I think probably the kids will find a way around it. Right. There's always this idea now that no matter how much parents try and control what their kids are watching and seeing on their phones, that actually kids are so technologically able that they're finding ways around the controls that we don't even know about. Um, And I'm sure the kids in China are no different.
0: It's funny, isn't it? We we used to say that with uh, fraud measures, the criminals are always one step ahead, right? But now it's going to be the kids are one step ahead in terms of being able to find ways around uh, firewalls, stopping them playing online gaming for more than an hour. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you. And do you know it's really interesting, isn't it? As as you say, as a kid, I used to hire a game and play it basically the entirety of the weekend until it was done, and then take it back. You know, and uh, it, I feel almost like, and again to your point around, you know, this is a uh, China is a place that will enforce things and really enforce them, not just say that they're going to do it, but it will happen. Um, it makes you it makes you wonder how they will enforce this one sort of to a certain degree. Can you imagine uh, somebody knocking on the front door and uh, uh, Mrs. Nicole, uh, we have uh, an understanding that uh, your daughter's been playing her DS too much? Um, you know, like the, the enforcement's going to be a bit of a challenge. But uh, uh, Cordell, well, I, I don't know if you were a gamer when you were a kid, but uh, how do you see this one being Im- implemented?
3: I, I definitely was a gamer. I, I played thousands of hours of um, PS2 and PS3. Um, and at, at some point, you know, I had to transition to, to becoming what I thought was an adult. And now I've made my way back to gaming. So it's slightly paradoxical. I, I'm not sure how they're going to try and enforce this, but I do know that they're going to put an immense amount of pressure on the major gaming companies themselves. Um in China, you have, you know, two or three behemoths, including Tencent, which is, you know, on par with a with a Facebook or an Apple as far as its scope and reach. And I think, you know, China has taken the lead as far as like beginning to regulate and really put pressure on their tech giants. We're seeing it all over the world. Um, but You know, as you say, in a communist regime, they have more tools and maybe more of a willingness to take it further. Um, so I I think they may be able to do it. They, they banned Didi from, from all app stores after they went public on a, on a US listing and, and they had advised them not to. So, um, there are some draconian measures that, that can be taken and, and, and maybe
2: it makes me think a little bit like, um, how, in japan all manufacturers of smartphones have to make sure that phones sold in japan always have the camera sound on so when you take pictures there's no or even if your phone's on silent it will still make that camera snap noise when you take a picture and maybe that that might be a strategy that they could incorporate you know it's not going to be going after the parents and checking up on them it will be going to the manufacturers of gaming equipment and saying like either the app stores for phones or sony for playstations or whatever and saying if you're selling this here you're going to have to be putting in controls where if the account is for somebody who's a kid's account then it cannot work after a certain time there are definitely ways that they can do this but it just depends on how much reach they have over the tech companies and like as as cordell said at the moment it's looking like they got quite a lot so (laughs) we'll have to see what they achieve
0: yeah it's interesting isn't it it's the um i wonder sometimes is it the the few who can't you know because it's Essentially, I mean, gaming is an addiction. You know, they make games in a way that actually creates the the, the sort of uh, reward loops, you know. So actually, is this a... An addiction they're dealing with, and therefore they're trying to to limit the the impact that it can have on many people. But you know, potentially, like Emily, me, and you, we wouldn't have been able to play games as much as a kid. And and I I still argue I learned more about good design than I did uh, playing FIFA and Pro Evolution Soccer than uh, than anything, quite frankly. If you want to learn good things about menu design, then uh, there's some good things to learn from EA anyway. But uh, all right, we better move on on this one because I think we could uh, we could kind of talk on this one for 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 a long time as well. But uh, there were a bunch of stories that we didn't have. To time to cover. Um, And we want to try and pick them up uh, and give them a little bit of a shout out. So Amy, I think you're going to kick us off with the first one.
1: Yes. So this is from um, the FinTech Times. Australian buy now, pay later Zip finds under 35s need support with financial adulting. And uh, it's to say that the majority or 87% of under 35s are saying that being financially secure is a vital part of adulting according to a new survey commissioned by payments company ZIP. Three in 10 report feeling less financially secure now compared to before the COVID-19 pandemic. And a third say this is because they've never felt financially secure. Overall, 61% of under 35 surveyed said they regularly worry about money, with unexpected home expenses and saving for a home deposit topping the list of concerns. Among the top adulting priorities for under 35s are home improvements and starting a family, serious investments that require financial confidence and capability. When asked about financial tools they would used in the past 12 months, one in five reported using a buy now, pay later service, while the majority of under 35s understand buy now, pay later, a significant number report feeling confused by credit cards and APR. So what stands out to me there actually is the point around the impact that the pandemic has has had on younger people feeling less financially secure. And I think it's interesting because it hints at how younger people have been disproportionately affected, perhaps largely due to the nature of their work, because we're seeing this divide between people who are actually financially better off now than they were pre-pandemic due to retaining their job, being able to set more aside into savings versus those under 35 who've actually accounted for almost 80% of jobs lost in the past year. So what's coming out from this research is that supporting under 35s with financial education and providing them with the right tools to help manage their money is more important now really than it's ever been. Whether by Now Pay Later is the right tool for that is another question. Um, But interesting to see what happens there.
0: Mm. I like the use of adulting there. It makes it sound like it's an option, like an option you can choose to opt out of. You know, like uh, the idea that I could opt out of adulting and just stay being a child for the rest of my life would uh, is kind of an interesting one, but I uh, might have to look into that a little bit more. Um, all right, the next story that we had was one that was covered by AltFi, which is IKEA says, hi, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, to buy now, pay later, investing $22.5 million in Israeli buy now, pay later firm, Shefiti? Pretty, but definitely sure I'm not saying that one, right? Um, IKEA has paid 22 million for a minority stake in the Israeli firm uh, through its investment. Arm Inca Group. Uh, now, IKEA customers will be able to buy their Billy bookcases, Panang chairs, and all sorts of other gubbins in, in IKEA through these financing options. Uh, Inca Group is taking decisive steps in financial services as a core part of its journey to help people and make IKEA more affordable, accessible for our customers," said the managing director of the investment group. Um, this is super interesting, right? I mean, again, you know, shout out to buy now, pay later being the uh, you know in bed the solution as far as you can, as closely as you can to the problem and like, hey, presto, people use it. Like it's sort of not really rocket science, but the fact that we're seeing, you know, banking truly be or payments or finance more broadly be truly embedded in all of the places where the problems really are makes a great deal of sense to me. I think touching on your point a second ago, Amy, about, you know, is buy now, pay later the the uh, the sort of, uh, uh, you know, ingredient we need in everything? Well, I mean, uh, when the regulation catches up, maybe. But um, but uh, again, I think for, for everybody thinking, it's just like, well, you know, we'll worry about it later. It's probably not going to end particularly well, is it? Anyway, on to you, Amy, for the next one.
1: This um, story is from TechCrunch Founders Factory and GeForce launch seed program for climate focused startups the UK tech accelerator Founders Factory is joining forces with a European counterpart to launch the Founders Factory Sustainability Seed Program. Launched in partnership with G-Force, the G stands for green, based out of Bratislava in Slovakia, the program will look to invest in and accelerate climate tech startups. The program will invest in entrepreneurs with startups that can reduce the world's greenhouse gas emissions, speed up the transition to a circular economy, Create sustainable housing and manufacturing solutions, as well as address climate friendly mobility, food or feed production, and capturing, storing CO2 and methane. Startups selected for the programme will get a seed investment of up to €150,000, six months of startup support using Founders Factory's team, as well as intros to potential customers, partners, corporates, and investors. I mean, it's incredibly timely as climate-focused and ESG um, are very hot topics right now. And there's huge potential for innovation. I think the market's still very much um, in its infancy. I I don't think this is purely limited to financial services, actually, from from that description. Um, But overall, it's a smart move uh, to base the programme in Europe rather than the UK and to bring in a European partner to help get the programme off the ground, as this will... um, or should give them access to a much wider pool of startups and potentially also enable them to take advantage of um, some of the EU grant programs that exist to help companies um, in this space. So all in all, um, an exciting initiative.
0: Yeah, I really agree. It's going to be interesting to see, again, as I've said a number of times through this, it's going to be interesting to see the take-up, isn't it? But it uh, makes a great deal of sense for everybody involved, doesn't it? All right. Well, that brings us back and uh, to the last story that we have for, for the day. Uh, Peter Thiel is building a luxury vacation bunker in New Zealand. So the multi-billionaire co-founder of PayPal, Plantier, uh, continues his quest to build a techno-capitalist fiefdom. That's a mouthful, really is. Uh, capable of withstanding society's impending eco-collapse down in New Zealand. Six years after purchasing 193 hectares of land in Damper Bay, Thiel's company Second Star Limited has filed paperwork to begin construction of an 11-room luxury lodge. 11-room um, luxury lodge, that's quite difficult to say as well. The designs are by Kengo Kuma, who is uh, behind the Tokyo Olympic stadiums, uh, and features various different things that you would need for up to 30 occupants to withstand in the impending doom of uh, some sort of um, post-apocalyptic world is clearly what he's planning for. But um, in a post-apocalyptic world, I just want lots of cans of vegetables and potentially a baseball bat. But he's going for a small meditation pod, a library, a theater lounge, and enough spa spaces for 30 people. That's quite impressive, isn't it? I have to say. I feel like I'm meeting, I'm sort of mingling with the wrong people at this point, Emily. Like I really need to uh, step up my A-game to be invited to the uh, the party after the world has ended, essentially. But uh, what, what do you think to this one is—is is this just what you do when you've got billions of pounds? You you know buy a massive plot and plan for the downfall of the world, or uh, is there something uh, mentally going on here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this is the the next version of Richard Branson's private island, right? When you're a billionaire and you've got money to spend, you need somewhere to go and hole up when you're hiding from everybody because you said something wrong, and Peter Thiel does that quite frequently. Um, but I'm not surprised in New Zealand. He's a big fan of Lord of the Rings. Palante, his his fund is named after a Lord of the Rings um, item, and he's also got a few others as well with Lord of the Rings names. So um, the fact that he wants to bed down in the countryside where it's all been filmed and, and have his small meditation pod and spas, it doesn't really surprise me very much. But yeah, it's interesting to see what billionaires spend their money on really, isn't it?
0: it's hobbit fantasies. Do you know what I enjoyed the movies didn't decide I wanted to be a hobbit and go to New Zealand and buy you know buy and build a bunker. I just enjoyed the movies for what they were, but uh, you know clearly billionaires they live a different life, don't they? But uh, Amy I mean I guess look, post pandemic having uh, you know the, the the retreats to be able to withstand those things in luxury, if you've got the money, it's probably edging your bets, isn't it? Now that one of them's happened, we're going to see more and more and more of these things happen, aren't they? So you might as well ride it out in luxury, have not you?
1: I think it's disappointing that the meditation pod is small. I think if you've got 193 hectares of land, you could have you could have a great big meditation pod if you wanted it. That's
0: that's true. That is very very true. And if not, if we've not learned any lessons today. I think if you're going to have a meditation pod, you might as well have a big meditation pod, haven't you? I think uh, if that's what we're learning. But uh, on that note, we really better wrap up because we've gone long on a couple of the other stories and I'm not sure you want to hear any more about that one, do you? So uh, that wraps up this week's news show. Uh, Thank you so much for everybody for for listening to this and thank you so much to the guests for, for joining us. Emily, where can people learn a little bit more about you and all the good writing that you do?
2: So you can read all my stories on FNLondon.com if you're a subscriber um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole.
0: Very cool. Cordell, where can people learn a little bit more about you and all the stuff you're up to?
3: So the best place for me is LinkedIn uh, at CordellRC and check out more about Carrie First at our website, uh, www.carryfirst.com.
0: Very, very cool. Uh, Amy, where can people learn more?
1: Uh, same for me. Uh, LinkedIn is is the
0: best place to uh, get in touch with me. Very cool. Uh, me also. LinkedIn lurker mostly these days. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Join the conversation over on social media or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye.